Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this, and that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books, or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Welcome back to Reimagining Love. I have a rich and enriching conversation to share with you today about how we navigate our lifelong relationships with the families we grow up in, our families of origin. And I'm joined by a guest who addresses this complex topic so beautifully. I'm thrilled to introduce you to the acclaimed therapist and author, Julia Samuel. Julia is a leading psychotherapist in the United Kingdom who worked for decades with the National Health Service. She's held many roles in the charitable sector and is the founding patron of Child Bereavement UK, an organization she played a significant part in for 25 years. 
Julia was given an honorary doctorate by Middlesex University in 2017. She's written three books, which have all been Sunday Times bestsellers, Grief Works, This Too Shall Pass, and Every Family Has a Story, which was published in 2022. Her new podcast series, Therapy Works, was released in October. In 2021, Julia produced an app for those who grieve called GriefWorks, which is a 28-day course to support you in your grief. Julia has been married for over four decades and has four adult children and nine grandchildren. In this conversation, Julia and I explore the ways that grief and money and mental health and relationships impact the entire family system. I love Julia's ability to speak compassionately about some of the most intricate and tender issues that so often arise within a family, particularly for families who've experienced loss, trauma, and separation. Julia also helps me to answer a fantastic listener question from a man who's curious about how his experience of falling in love at an older age might differ from the young love he experienced in the past. I think you're really going to love Julia's hopeful response to that question. Make sure you listen to the end to catch that part of the episode. I hope that you connect to this conversation and enjoy hearing from Julia. Hi, Julia. Hello, Alexandra. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. It's like I get a free therapy session practically. Me too. (laughs) Me too in terms of looking forward and me too wondering, okay, so how am I going to work my own stuff into this conversation? (laughs) We met, it was like many years ago now at this point at an event that Esther Perel was hosting and she's a, a dear person to both you and I. And I remember at that event feeling so drawn to you and wanting to be like, okay, where's Julia now? And wanting to have a little bit more interaction. You were one of those people where when I met you, I felt like I had known you forever. I felt the same. I felt that, I mean, I think Esther does have a particular magic, the people she chooses. And if you're kind of around her, you feel you're going to like everybody already. So it's like you, you're predetermined. But I think you and I just hit it off and that does just happen sometimes. And it's such a joy. So I'm so pleased to have this time now. I'm really excited to talk with you about family dynamics and how our family stories travel through generations and shape us and affect us. And of course, to really highlight the beautiful work of your book, which is called Every Family Has a Story. But I want to start with you where I like to start with all Reimagining Love guests, which is by asking you the relational self-awareness questions. Are you ready for the question, Julia? I am. Well, I don't know if I'm ever ready, but ask away. That's it. (laughs) Could you talk with us a little bit about a growing edge that you're currently working on or exploring in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately? So the thing I have been working on, which really I've been working on probably my whole life. So I don't know if we ever really get these very key core difficulties kind of sorted, but they are changing, which is, I guess, the right place to be heading. And that is about conflict, about having productive fights or productive conflict and having the courage to be assertive, to kind of disagree in the right way that doesn't wipe other people out. But the underlying thing for me is I'm I'm frightened of my own anger. So I tend to shut down and I'm frightened of other people's anger, which I instantly shut down or I want to leave the room. And 
with my husband, who I, we've been married for 43 years, we have, in the last kind of 10, 12 years, we have got better at fighting. I think a lot of it is him rather than me, in that he kind of keeps me in the room and kind of gets me to say what I really feel. And so I'm not frightened of him. But with my children, who are all adult, my children are aged from 42 to 35, I am still frightened of being angry with them. And I'm, I get upset rather than work it through when they're angry with me. Mm -hmm. It's harder to stay. Whereas with your husband, you the two of you have figured out ways where you are able to stay engaged for longer. He knows how to kind of position himself in a way that keeps you able to stay engaged. But it sounds like with your kids, there's still that measure of fear of, of either you getting upset and pushing them away or them becoming upset with you and being becoming unavailable to you. I think I become a child and they and they become a child. So it's two children fighting, two kind of frightened, angry children, which isn't a great recipe for really good communication. And whereas my husband, we can he helps me regulate and I help him regulate. So we stay kind of connected while we're disagreeing. I mean, I have got better with my children. And the thing that we do do, thank God, is repair. So, and we, I've learned that, you know, you can't apologize too soon and repair. Sometimes it takes a day or 20, you know, two days to go back and really work out what was the fight really about, because it's very rarely about what's on top with us, which is normally small things. And so we, we are getting better, but I get, it takes me a really long time to regulate after a fight. I feel disturbed for days. You know, as the... As a mama who's not quite as far along as you, you know, I am the parent of two emerging adults. I, I feel the beginning of that shift and how conflict adult to adult or tension or disagreements or differences in values and priorities, how that feels so different when you are adult to adult. And like when you describe, we both become, I feel like a child and my adult child feels like a child. I can imagine that that is disorienting, right? Because your child still sees the parent and you still see them as a little person, you know, and it's this like both and of, of a much more level playing field than certainly when they were little and you were big, but never truly a level playing field because you are always the parent. And so those deeper pieces that you're getting to, right, do have to do with power. Power. Mm -hmm. And so wanting us to have collaborative power and repair as equals, knowing that I am always the mother. And so it's never equal because even though, you know, my children are very kind of confident and strong and articulate, thank goodness, but they're always, you know, they're, it, fundamentally they will always have a part of them that feels like a child with me. I never want to step on that. I never want to hurt the child in them. I never want to hurt them. That's the thing about fights, right? Right. I think that's so important for you. Just there's so much in that offering of even as a mother in dialogue with my adult children, right? I know part of my responsibility is to hold the power that I'm 
the mother no matter what, and that I have a power to hurt them. And so therefore I am so, I want to be, and I practice being so careful with that power. I think that there's so much in that offering. And I can just imagine a listener right now taking that away and just working with it because of how potent that feeling of disempowerment is in the moment, you know? So, oh, Julia, okay, well, you're, you're taking us beautifully into, I mean, a central theme in your book, talking about power, like understanding power dynamics in family systems, understanding how to navigate conflict in family systems. Those are two major themes of your book, Every Family Has a Story. And this book came out in 2022. It's your third book. And what you do is so incredible, which is you you tell us the story of eight different family systems, multi-generational family systems. And you do that, you use narrative and story to give us the chance to more deeply understand what is a family, what helps a family thrive across time, what creates vulnerability or risk for family to fracture, especially around transitions and crises. So why did you center family in this way? Why are our families' stories, our families, you know, the stories that kind of move between the generations, why are those stories so incredibly important for us to know and understand? I think my starting point was that I feel like we focus so much on parenting and the individual, and we've ignored this enormous piece of the multi-generation family system of what has got passed down from generation to generation. And it gets passed down in so many different kind of really invisible formats. So it gets passed down in behaviors, gets passed down in scripts about what's allowed, what's not allowed. It can get passed down epigenetically. The trauma can get passed down epigenetically. And it can get passed down from often what I kind of, when I worked with those different families, it's what isn't talked about, where what is silenced, what is not allowed, holds so much power to often do harm. Because when, in the same way as I'm not very good with anger, when those systems have a a transition, which could be a death, it could be someone divorcing, it could be someone going broke, all the kind of different nodal events, the pre-existing fault lines become under enormous pressure because everybody's default mode of coping is what comes first in response to a crisis, a a big crisis or a small crisis. And what I wanted to show was the families that were able to hold together and weather these impossible transitions had qualities that other families don't. And the the key ones were they were able to communicate in a way that allowed a difference, that allowed the conflict, that allowed different viewpoints, different ways of being, different ways of operating. And in doing that, they could express very painful, complicated feelings and wishes and wants that could then kind of expand the family and allow the family to hold on and stay connected with each other at these very difficult times, if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And I think that your book would have been important in you know the year 2000 or the year 2010, but the book being with us now is so important and timely because there is, as you well know, 
we're in this like really, really important moment of individuals looking at their family systems, this idea of intergenerational transmission, epigenetics, like this is becoming, which is so wild to know for you and I both who are decades into our career as therapists is what we've been doing behind closed doors for decades. And now it's like, it's happening, you know, it's on TikTok. It is, there's so much conversation about this, but I think there's a risk of having a very tight lens and having it be what happened to me, right? What did what was done to me? What are my traumas? What did I not get? And by you reminding us that the entire system is the client, that everybody in the system is shaping each other, you know, in real time, it's actually quite empowering because so much of the certainly we need space for all of the trauma language. We need to make a ton of space for trauma. And I worry that when that becomes our sole focus, we miss the ways in which even a young adult is simultaneously shaping the system as they're being shaped by the system. So by you really featuring the system, the ways in which people are playing off of each other around these transitions, it's quite an empowering approach and it keeps our lens really wide, you know, to look at what's happening in the spaces between a few different people around a difficult transition like a death and all these ones that you're mentioning. Because I think that I I completely agree. And I, you know, the thing about trauma is what trauma needs most is love and connection. And what it finds hardest to allow is love and connection. So that when someone is in a heightened state, when they are kind of hyper aroused, their capacity to be empathic, to reflect, to self-regulate is completely offline. And so if in a family, all of you are in a heightened state, but for many different reasons, because something is happening in the moment, because of transgenerational trauma, because of you know all the different things that we've talked about, the thing that the system needs is compassion and space and time to hear each other so you can begin in the kind of polyvagal theory to be ventral vagal so then you can connect and once you're connected then you have the opportunity and the hippocampus your mind online to have many different ideas and wisdom and intentions that's good for yourself and voice speaks for yourself and for the whole project family, if you see what I mean. When you're in a very heightened state, when you're under threat, you really only have survival in mind. So you're not, you're not able to think about everybody else, your sister, your brother, or your mum or dad, or your kids. I mean, maybe your kids, because that's so biological. And also the idea that as a family, when difficult things happen, what I keep kept on seeing for decades in my therapy room, as I saw, as I'm sure you do, is that at the time where you need each other most is the time you fall out the most. And, you know, I really wanted to find a way of saying we can really do this at acknowledging how painful this particular experience is. Like one of the stories was a family whose father died by suicide and and he, he died 30 years before. But his death and the trauma of it was present in the three daughters that he left and his wife, and they had never dealt with that trauma. So it kept on being acted out. Every summer holiday, the mum would kind of march off on a 
beat if she felt abandoned or the children would had addiction problems. There was just so there was all this legacy that was present. And that's the thing with trauma. It's present today. You're living in yesterday, the trauma of yesterday, today. That's the terrible nature of it. And actually we only had eight sessions, which is like eight hours, the four of us. And you know, which is like nothing. But just the mum saying to her kids, I never asked you what it was like for you because I couldn't bear to hear what you would say. And they got that and she got that. So that compassion or the daughter to say to mum, I'm fed up with you behaving like a child. Like I am your child. I want you to be an adult (laughs) and I want us to do it differently. And that the mum, because there was someone there mediating, could hear that and be upset. And they really changed their pattern because they could name it. It wasn't very complicated. It was not very complicated. And it would have continued to play out again and again and again until it was named. And even though this was in linear time, 30 years after the loss of the dad, you were able to be there and support really deep healing. And hopefully that that mother had compassion for herself, for all of what kept her from being able to ask the question and offer what she now was able to offer, but that in having the space to finally say out loud the thing that everybody was too scared to say and too scared to talk about. And certainly death will, you know, death creates lots of pockets of silence and certainly death by suicide evermore. And so by you being able to hold a space for the kind of checking in that we wish would have happened 30 years ago, but which is happening now, then change what was possible for them, which is both tragic for the time they didn't have that and so hopeful and such a helpful reminder that it's never, it really is never too late, is it? It's never too late. It's never too late. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. And the thing that if people are listening about in their families, that I really want to help them know for themselves is what is kind of unspeakable is also unbearable because you can't digest it. So the feelings of shame, of murderous fury, of abandonment, for instance, in this story, when you hold them inside and they're not voiced, they do turn against you like you are there's something wrong with you, you know, that all of that kind of self-harm that comes from these feelings, because where else can they go? And just in 
finding a way of having a story that fits with how you feel inside and who you are now, and that that is witnessed by the most important people in your life, the people in your family, and they see you as you see yourself, and then you see each other like that, is unbelievably profound. And we don't do it. We use this thing, protection. I wanted to protect her. A mother wants to protect her child. A sister wants to protect her sister. And I'm not saying we should all go out venting and kind of telling everybody everything and have kind of promiscuous honesty. But I think in carefully, like in therapy, for instance, there's so much that can be healed from the voicing of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about, I think that there are probably ways that listeners can you know, attempt these kinds of conversations, especially when both, you know, when both sisters are available or both mother and son are available, when when both are saying, let's look at this together. But you're right that it is it is this, a therapist, especially a therapist who's trained to work with a system like that, who can hold the mother in warm regard, even as she makes space for the daughter to say out loud how painful it was that you never checked on us, you know, to kind of hold on to both of those and to help that mom be able to offer. Like there's something so powerful about the mom, you know, not disappearing into shame, not retaliating in, but what about me? I lost my husband, da, da, da. But really saying what I'm hearing you say is that you really needed me to ask and to check on you. And I didn't do that then. And I'm doing it now. I want to hear now. I want to hear now what it was like. It's some of my favorite work is when I'm able to work with a family system of, you know, of adult. I think we oftentimes think of family therapy as something that parents and young children make use of. And that certainly is a wonderful time for family therapy to happen. But family therapy in a system with grown, you know, adult children and their parents or adult siblings, it's very powerful work. You know, you say early on in the book that when a family is in transition, what is needed is to, quote, draw on our deepest reserves of love, patience, self-awareness, time, effort, and of course, money. Why do you say, of course, money? (laughs) Well, because I think we don't talk about money because there's some sort of shame associated with money. But money in family systems has a lot of threat if there isn't enough money or protection if there is enough money. And sometimes money can kind of support us to manage what is really difficult, but we don't talk about it. I'm not sure that's really answered your question, but it, I mean, money is a big part of everybody's life and it's very big part in family life. And especially around these transitions, like I'm thinking about when there's a death in the family or when a couple becomes married, right? And I think that you're right that we don't, we have a hard time kind of whole, like toggling between these two realities that money is is at one level, dollars and cents. And at another level, it is everything from, as you're saying, care, respect, trust, mutuality, control, power, gender. Like there's so much that's activated. And so- And it can be a proxy for love, can't it? Or it can be a proxy for power. It can be used, it can be acted out. It can really cause a lot of, problems in families. So do you have a sort of principle or two that you want a family to keep in mind? If, for example, there's tension in a family as they're approaching one of these life stage transitions, like 
a wedding or like a death, certainly, right, around estates and all of that. Are there a couple of principles, perhaps from your 12 principles in in this book, you (laughs) offer us these beautiful 12 touchstones. Are there, what would you want to be whispering into family members' ears if and as they're kind of in conflict about money? What would you want them to be keeping in mind and remembering? Is that having conversations well before anyone is likely to die or even conversations well before your kids are going to get married about money so that there is transparency, so that there's honesty, so that family members can have a voice and have an opinion that is heard and acknowledged, that money is often silent. It's like, don't talk about it. You know, I was brought up at a time and my, this is a terrible thing to say, but it is, my father was a different generation. It was common to talk about money. It's like, it's just not done. You don't talk about money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But (laughs) it it meant that I was completely ignorant. And then a whole lot of things happened that kind of shocked me. And I was upset because we would never, I'd never been prepared. So I think around big transitions, you know, like death, the thing I would like a family to do is, I, I think walking and talking is a really good way of having challenging conversations because you're outside, you're in nature, you're not eyeballing each other. There's a rhythm in your movements. You don't need to speak. You can kind of have your time and each of you can kind of check in with what you're questioning or what you want information on or what your worries are. So a way into a conversation, I think about death or money would be, you know, the parent needing it with their children, teenage children, adult children, is when you think about our dying, what are you thinking? And what are your worries? Because worries is a very general question. It's not, you know, it could be I'm worried, you know, that I'm not going to, who's going to take me to school? But it could be that you have a dad that has cancer and he actually could be dying and it could be, dad, are you going to die? Because I think we have this magical thinking around, I don't know if we have magical thinking about money. I think we just have quite a lot of hidden kind of shame. And as we talked about power and love issues, fear around money. But we have a magical thinking around death, which is if I talk about it, it's going to make it happen. But the thing that protects us for these big life transitions is knowledge and information, and that everybody knows the same truth at the same time. So there aren't little corners of some people that are privy to information because they're older or they're good with money or good with this stuff. But everybody has the same knowledge and information and everybody can ask and discuss and kind of be collaborative in what's going on. I think you're spot on when you're talking about parents taking the lead in this conversation. And so I think if a parent is, you know, if there's a parent who is aware they have not, you know, invested the time and energy to create a will and a trust and a plan to maybe do some work on themselves of like, what were the messages that you grew up with around money and resources? And so kind of like make, it's like really look at your own inheritance, like your emotional inheritance around how did your family do money? And then how do you want it to be different for your kid? Like, and if so, if you, if you grew up in a family that didn't talk about money, what do you wish that your parents would have told you? How do you wish they would have readied you? How do you wish they would have, you know, done their own planning. And so then now as the parent, how can you take the lead and offer a different kind of a legacy to your kids? 
I'm the daughter of aging parents, and this is so front of mind for for me as, you know, it's a hard conversation for me to bring up. I'm afraid of being perceived as greedy, you know, or nosy. My gosh, I grew up in a family where I was literally taught nosy people don't live long. Like I was taught and told you do not ask questions, which is why I became a therapist so that I can get paid to ask questions. <laughs> so it is really confronting for me to, in the way that I've been doing it is to say, like, I want to honor whatever the two of you want, right? I want to honor that. And so I would like to understand where are your heads at? What are you thinking? How can I be a support so that it really, I'm explicit about, I want to open a conversation about your thoughts, your plans, your wishes. I mean, it touches on two of our three hardest topics, right? Death, sex, and money. So asking your parents, what are your plans and wishes for, you know, after you're gone gets us in both those places around bringing up two taboo subjects at once, death and money. And so that idea of saying, I want to be well positioned to honor you. I think that's a really lovely way of doing it. And I think also to be kind of very tentative in the way the way you say it is very respectful and really loving, but also to kind of invite them. It can be an invitation to tell you, not a kind of, I need to know, but it's such a kind of gentle, like, as you said, I want to support you and I want to respect you. And also, I want, as an adult daughter, I want to love you. And if I can help you with this, like I've, if, if this is something that's difficult for you, talk to me so that we can think about it together. Like sometimes these conversations need more than two minds. They can, you know. Yes. I think that's a really huge takeaway is to normalize. I think sometimes we get, because the stakes feel high and because that door is so hard to open, I think sometimes we feel like we have to get every dimension of this topic figured out in this conversation when actually our nervous systems and our souls and our brains and our hearts, we, we would do much better with some little small doses of opening it up and closing it down. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important message. So Julia, for a listener who feels like that they're on board to start to look at these legacies in their family, to start to open different kinds of conversations, but they aren't sure if anybody else is on board. How might one person begin? Like how might a listener start to understand, you know, the ways, like the power of their, of their stories? Like are there particular practices or ways that you like to invite somebody to start looking at the themes in their family that, that they could do even starting today after listening to this conversation? I mean, I think one way is looking at a family tree where you could even just start with your grandparents' generation and your parents' generation and think about these subjects. Like, what did your grandmother allow and not allow around sex, around death, around money? Like, what were her beliefs? What were her values? What was allowed? What wasn't allowed? And so what has got passed down? But also, you'll have half-heard stories like your grandmother's had a a stillbirth, you know, your great-grandmother had a stillbirth, your grandmother's sister died when she was two or a stillbirth or like try and find out what are the stories that haven't been told because that will be in the system as well. And, you know, certainly for my generation, you know, my parents, my uncle was killed in the war 
My grandparents fought in the First World War, both carried a lot of trauma from that. So there's a lot of, so kind of find out the untold stories of, of what has happened in your family. And I think often grandparents do want to say, I mean, I would record them as well, because it's lovely to have them on, on audio. There's a way in which that approach is so gentle. Like certainly what you may end up doing with all of the data you collect is looking at, okay, so what does this mean for me and my patterns of friendship, my patterns of intimate partnership, my patterns of parenting. But when you are actually doing that real live data collection, you really are, you're inviting and challenging the listener to really be like an ethnographer, you know, really just like just collecting stories. My college students need to do a project like this for my, well, my college students and then my grad students when I taught them as well. Certainly those who are becoming therapists need to mine their family systems for all of these stories. And that would be the way I would set them up to go into those conversations is to really see yourself as an ethnographer or an anthropologist or a reporter, not an investigative reporter, you know, but just a really curious, like, you know, sitting at their feet, really going in with that curiosity. And you don't even have to have the expectation that it will change your perspective, but very likely it will change your perspective. You know, you will see, you'll, you'll see a dimension of this grandma of yours that you had not ever seen or known. You will see her as a little girl in a way you hadn't before. You'll see your father in a different light. And so I love that idea of really bringing in some open-ended questions about these elders' stories. And then from there, you can start to pull out themes of, you know, control and themes of silence and themes of trauma and themes of gendered themes. Like you can take your data then and kind of go with the more psychological stuff. You can pull it out of that story. But when you're with your elder, you can just be a listener and a question asker. That's a lovely way of saying it. And I think, yeah, just being a curious soul, listening and kind of working out the nuggets afterwards, but just being really kind of gentle and listening. People, I think the people telling you, your your family telling you will feel enriched by it, but I think you will too. I think one of the things that came out in the book, which would be also useful to look at within the family, is I think sibling rivalry has been very under-recognized in our maturation and how we develop. So we all look at sort of, you know, a secure and insecure attachment from the parenting. But actually, I think we can get quite a lot of injuries from sibling rivalry, which will be because of something that's not quite right within the whole environment that will you know, the sense of safety that hasn't been created by the parents or that there isn't enough. So there's kind of, you have to steal what little love there is and kind of try and punch your sibling out the way. But I also think, look at sibling patterns, because I think, tell me, I think in married relationships, you can have sibling rivalry. And also you can have your sibling rivalry that you then play out and repeat with your children so that you will want to protect the middle child or the youngest child or whatever you were, you th- whatever happened to you, kind of want to make sure it doesn't happen again unconsciously. And so I think there's a lot around sibling rivalry that we sh- need to pay more attention to. It's a really, really, really untapped area of exploration. I think the other place I think sibling rivalry plays out is at work with our work colleagues. You know, I think that we've got the big themes that come up in sibling relationships are comparison and competition, competition for attention, competition for resources. And so whenever we're in a spot 
where there's somebody to our left or somebody to our right, that's going to pull forward sibling stuff, yeah. right? And I think parents who haven't healed their own sibling wounds, just as you're saying, will play them out. I think it's really, it's you're inviting parents into a very powerful piece of relational self-awareness, which is which of your kids do you tend to get protective of when there's a you know, little skirmish between two of them or between three of them? Who's the one whose you know, side you take, quote unquote, side? And it can feel like objective truth. Well, that one needs protecting, but very likely there's a tie there for you to look at of, okay, why? why? You know, and does your partner the birth order want to protect the other one? Yeah, it's oftentimes yeah. birth order or gender or something about temperament. Or you see yourself, you look like your four-year-old or, or they look like you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Much in the same way as we have blind spots with our partner, I think we have blind spots with our kids and looking at those dynamics. I mean, my husband and I definitely have sibling rivalry for our children's attention. It's like, he said something the other day that he was going to ask them, he was going to send them a text. And I said, no, I'm going to send it. It's like, I, I want to get the credit for that. It was my idea. That's sibling rivalry with your husband. That's right. So then That's we right. did it on the group and we both did it, mom and dad sort of thing. Uh-huh. And so, but I was like, no, they're going to like no, you. it's mine. They're going to like you better. No way. <laughs> I'm 64. I've been a therapist 33 years. I right. wouldn't let him send a text. That's so funny. <laughs> it's so very real. I can really, really appreciate that. Uh-huh. Uh Okay, wait, before we do listener question. So one place I see adult kids getting tripped up is when they are asked to or when they need to provide care, perhaps to an aging parent who has not been supportive to them or gentle with them. So can you just speak a little bit or can we speak together a little bit about the role of duty? Like, How do we you know, just, yeah. Can you speak to what comes up in us? How ought we deal with it when we are asked to provide care and we're fully, and we're quite aware and tender about all the ways in which we were not given that kind of care? I mean, I, I really hear this a lot in my therapy room. So it's, it's very live issue for me. And of course, on the one hand, as the adult with an elderly sick parent, they feel like their piggy bank is empty and that now they're asked, you know, they weren't given much. They feel kind of desolate inside from what their parent gave them. And they may have a very angry, difficult parent. You know, I've seen that quite often where you've got an angry parent who's very demanding and difficult, who's always been difficult, who now demands that you come and visit them or help pay for their, their care or take them to hospital and and uses all the manipulations that they used when you were a child as you as an adult. So it's incredibly demanding. And so I don't, I don't have a clear answer. I mean, I do, I think there is a role of duty, but also I think there's this role of not wanting to be the version of yourself that is, is like them. So you don't want to act out and be a kind of parallel version that's mean to them. And you do want to be your best self. And I think the thing, I think it's really difficult for single children. I think it's not always easier because there can be conflict with siblings where there's been difficult parenting, but where there's more of you, I think you can share the load, which does help carry it. But I think basically you can't really manage it alone, that you need psychologically support 
from the people that love you to give you enough emotional kind of connection and resource so that you can put to one side what you really feel about your parent and as much as you can give be the best version of yourself that you can offer and and that would be on a a kind of span for some it would be very little but for some they might be able to be quite a lot because the other part to think about is that when the parent has died one of the big derailers of grief is regret that I was in the end a bad daughter and then you have no opportunity to repair or put that right and that can really be very harmful to your to your grieving process and can cause complicated grief so I think it's incredibly difficult and such a good question and there's no kind of black and white answers but you need support and Give the most that you can, given who you are and given the relationship you've had. It would be the kind of leaning. What do you think? Yeah, I think the support is huge. And the support, I can imagine, needs to be explicit. Like, what you're doing is remarkable. What you're doing is brave. What you're doing is hard. Look at you giving something to the parent who wasn't able to give that to you. You know, and really like helping the adult child feel that sense of pride, like that as the little version of self-protest, like this isn't fair, this isn't right. Or as a a little version of self, yeah. Or as a little version of self wants to, maybe has the urge to over-function and over-care in the hopes that maybe this time I'll get the thing that I need. I'll get back what I never got. Yeah. Yeah. And that, right. And really having, having those what my friend Kim calls witnessing eyes who are saying like, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I see how brave it is. I see how difficult it is. And then, yeah, that care can be on a spectrum. And so maybe it is feeling into what is the amount of care that I can provide that doesn't fuel resentment, exhaustion, trauma that now I've got to like kind of process like there, you know, there's, there are degrees of care. Perhaps I provide a lot of financial support, but there's space or perhaps I provide you know, care, but I'm there for 30 minutes, not, you know, all day. Or like, what are the ways that kind of like to titrate the amount and the type of care in a way that feels sustainable and that feels like it is honoring the power of family without exhausting and triggering oneself too much? And I think within that kind of, I think boundaries, as you've just said, is really crucial, but also having the sentences to respond to your parent that says, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm really happy to do this. And I'm not able to do that. So to have a good no that really facilitates you having a good yes. So kind of being clear and practicing it with someone else so that you can say, mom, I can take you to the hospital on Tuesday. You know, I'm really delighted to do that. And I can't do Thursday, Saturday, whatever, whatever the thing is so that you use your no to embolden your yes and then you feel like you have more agency. That's right. I think that's a really, really, really good point. And I think you can offer empathy. Yeah. It's hard, mom. I know that it's hard for you when you haven't heard from me for a few days. That's hard, right? I think you can offer, offering empathy does not mean I suck, I'm terrible. No. You're right, I'm wrong. It just says, it. I hear that it's really hard for you when you haven't heard from me in a couple of days. Uh Okay, listener question. So we heard from 
a listener in Houston, Texas. He uses he, him pronouns. And he wrote, I'm 47 years old and I've been divorced for two and a half years after an 18-year marriage. I've started dating again and it's refreshingly good. My question revolves around contrasting a healthy long-term relationship in your 40s versus your 20s. What is the ceiling for and how does new midlife love differ the second time around? I've only been head over heels in love once and I married that lady. Somewhere along the way, she fell out of love and I tried everything to reconcile and hold the family together, but it wasn't enough. So Julia, what are a couple of your kind of opening thoughts about our listener here in Houston? I mean, my first thought is that falling in love in your 20s, you have kind of that wonderful blissful ignorance. You're, you're not walking wounded. You don't have a lot of baggage. And I don't mean baggage in a, I mean, maybe I should use life. You haven't got a lot of things that you're taking with you. You haven't got as many. And so in your 40s, of course, he'll be carrying the loss of his previous relationship and what that means for him to being able to really surrender to love, to fully trust, to jump in. And also there'll be much more kind of logistics if he's got children and how much life do you share with someone? I think there's many more. And I think how we think about relationships now contextually is also very different, you know, about monogamy, about living apart and together, about what you share. I think there's also you're choosing probably to have this relationship for the relationship, not to have kids maybe, you know, so that what you want from the relationship, how you think about the relationship is really completely different. Such good points. Yeah. His answer in some ways is embedded in the question, which is like in all of what you're highlighting is the biggest thing he can do is not expect it to be like the twenties and, you know, and to perhaps, and perhaps there's in some ways some grief of that loss of, you know, cause he remembers his 20 year old self falling in love. And so he has to kind of thank that version of himself for what that version of himself was able to experience while getting to know this 47-year-old version of himself and get curious about, okay, so how does he fall in love, right, with the wisdom, with the tender spots, with the complexity. And so to let it be different, to not expect, I think we, we make these hierarchies, like better and worse ways of starting a love story. And this one might be really different. It may just have a really different rhythm and cadence and feel and to really celebrate that for all that it is rather than holding it up against the the 1.0 and saying, yeah, but it's not that. Yeah, but it's not that. No. Okay. Well, what is it? What is it? What are the beauties of this time around? I think the other thing I've really noticed in both couples and individuals that I work with, that when do you fall in love at 50, 60, 70, and I've had a 73-year-old woman fall in love, the love that you feel doesn't age. So that falling in love feeling has no age to it. My 73-year-old woman who's fallen in love, she's had maybe three serious relationships before, she feels 18. <laughs> she feels passionate. She feels sexy. That's she right. feels alive. That's right. She feels like life is like rose-tinted glasses. So I don't think feelings age. Feelings, I think, are timeless. Whether it's sadness, grief, falling in love, feeling sexy, I think they are entirely ageless. I think 
our minds and our experiences and our life brings us whole a kind of mindset that we need to include in how we make decisions and how we choose to be in the relationship. But I think feelings are utterly ageless. Okay. Well, I mean, that's just where we're going to go ahead and end this episode. That is just so perfect. Right. And so then he gets to do this two things at once of like really enjoying the agelessness of the feeling, even as he makes thoughtful, intentional, careful choices about how he builds a life with her, which may not. And in fact, he has the potential to make even a stronger relationship because in our twenties, it may be that the strength of the feelings then just fuels a whole, you know, all of those choices. And now he gets to really figure out, okay, I'm going to really enjoy and cherish this feeling. And then we get to pick and choose and figure out how we weave our lives together while very much enjoying the feeling. Yes. The feelings are ageless. (laughs) Okay, listener in Houston, I hope that offers you something that you can chew on and work with. That's so beautiful. So Julia, thank you for being here with me today. For listeners who are perhaps getting to to be part of your wise and brilliant mind for the first time, where can they go to learn more about you and all of the good work you're doing? So they can, I'm on Instagram as Julia Samuel MBE. I've got a website, www.juliasamuel.co.uk. I've got an app that you can get on Apple or on Android called Griefworks app, which is like a 28-day course. So it's like therapy um, and it has like 60 tools and a journal and lots of content. And you can access a therapist through it, actually. And my three books that you've mentioned already. So yeah, come and find me. And I've got a podcast, the Therapy Works podcast. Yeah. That's right. I'm glad you mentioned that, the Therapy Works podcast. Okay, well, we're going to link all of that in the show notes because you have a bunch of new fans now. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Julia. I continue to be your fan. I had such a wonderful time speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. It's entirely mutual. I'm a big fan of yours, Alexandra. That was so warm and lovely. And I felt everything I said, you made it better than I'd said it. So it was like, (laughs) yeah, she took a kind of little grain and then she made it into a cake. It was fabulous. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's like the best yes. praise ever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Julia, for sharing your wisdom here with me on Reimagining Love. To learn more about Julia's newest book, Every Family Has a Story, check out the show notes of this episode. Thank you to our listener who submitted that thoughtful question. I hope that our answers provided you some comfort and some reassurance. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.